Welcome to this new Law and Sport podcast. In today's podcast, Mark Avell, head of sport at Mills and Reeve and arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, speaks to Law and Sport CEO Sean Cottrell about his time at the Court of Arbitration for Sport ad hoc division at the Rio Olympic Games. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Law and Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law and Sport. I'm currently in Manchester for the Soccer Ex Conference. While I was here, I thought I'd pop into the offices of Mills and Reeves to speak to a good friend and uh, and sport leading sports lawyer, Mark Cavell, who's the head of sports law at Mills and Reeves and an arbitrator at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks for meeting with me this morning and you fit me into your busy schedule at the start of the week. No problem, no problem. Uh, you've recently got back from Rio because you were there, not just on holiday, <laughs> I hope, <laughs> um, but with the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Can you tell me and our listeners what your role was with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, what an average day looked like when you were at the Olympic Games? Sure. Um, well, I was there on the uh, the CAS ad hoc division, so probably for about the last five or six Olympic Games, things like the Commonwealth Games, even the Asian Beach Games. Um, the organisers of those competitions invite a, a delegation of arbitrators uh, to come out uh, and be on the ground, if you like, at the Games uh, to deal with any legal issues that arise. So obviously it can deal with things like eligibility, selection cases, doping cases. And the whole idea is that uh, we offer a 24-hour arbitration service. So literally from, uh, if it was at 9 o'clock on a Monday morning, uh, somebody files an application then by nine o'clock on Tuesday morning, the idea is to actually have a written decision for them. Um, so a normal arbitration at the course of arbitration in Lausanne in Switzerland could take somewhere between three and six months to actually give a decision um, for the parties. But clearly when the games are ongoing, you need quick decisions because it can, otherwise you don't know who's gonna be competing the next day. And what would be the typical issue that you'd be hearing at the well, I suppose at the beginning of the uh, the games, it typically is sort of uh, eligibility cases or selection cases. So it could be, is an athlete has an athlete actually sort of made the qualifying criteria to to take part in the games, and selection cases could be where you've got more than one athlete from one country that's made the uh, the, the qualifying score or criteria, and you know they're both fighting for one spot. So you have to determine which which one gets to go and compete. So you've heard. A ridiculous number of cast cases now, I think, in the hundreds. 150, uh, <laughs> 150 odd, I think, yes. Um, how does it differ from you know, a, a normal arbitration? I know you've mentioned that obviously it's quicker and, you know, the, and, the, and the time restraints are, are, are reduced. From your own personal perspective, what sort of pressure does that put on you? How do you address it? How do you come still to a reasons and fair decision? Yeah, it's. Well, I think everybody has to appreciate that it's it's not a full decision, and um, you know there are instances that, for example, I had a I had a doping case, which is pretty rare, um, where the athlete could say, well, look, I, I don't want to have my decision taken within twenty four hours because I could end up with, and in this guy's case, he did end up with a four year ban, um, and it could sometimes be sensible to walk away from the the games and go and have your case heard in the normal course at uh, Castle Um But this particular athlete was, was adamant that he wanted to compete, so he, he, uh, he went for a full hearing. Um, and cases like that uh, are difficult because you know, you're not going to get the same amounts of witness evidence, the same amount of expert evidence that you would at a full hearing. Um, 
But you know, it's it's the sort of flexibility of arbitration. You have to get a decision. That's the key. Um, so you have to deal with what's in front of you. So some of the cases, it's you know, it's a written application. You give the other party, you know, literally a couple of hours to give their written response. You convene a hearing. You get everybody together. Sometimes you know the parties' representatives are on the phone, uh, ringing from a you know, completely different country, um, and you listen to it. You ask the questions, and you know you get to a point where you feel comfortable to give a decision. I'm sure many people will be listening and thinking, "Why are some of the issues that you hear not sorted out before the games?" <laughs> uh, so my question is, why are yeah. why are inevitably there's going to be no doubt there's going to be some issues that are brought up but you know, are these matters that, sh- that could have or should have been uh, dealt with before the games potentially I mean uh, I suppose we our jurisdiction starts 10 days before the games so in, in Rio um, the window opens if you like for our jurisdiction and you know sometimes you feel that uh, parties should have actually exhausted remedies elsewhere um, before coming to uh, the CAS I think sometimes it's a, a tactical decision by their lawyers to actually say, well, look, we'll, we'll go to the CAS because it's a bit more of a sort of rush procedure and we may get a more equitable outcome, if you like. Um, but, you know, we have to be very careful as to whether or not to take jurisdiction. So the, the first case I uh, actually received when I arrived in Rio was uh, a Canadian um, equestrian case. And we actually, or it was a sole arbitration, so I actually uh, rejected um, that case on the basis that the athlete was supposed to have taken and exhausted all legal remedies before, and she could have actually gone to the FEI tribunal, and should have gone to the FEI tribunal, um, and she was aware of her situation nearly three weeks before she brought the case to us. But the case came to me, and it was, I needed a decision in four hours not 24 hours, four hours, because otherwise I can't get my horse through quarantine from Canada to get down to Brazil. So, yes, written application from her, response in writing from the FEI, um, dealt with it on the papers, but there was a written decision within the four hours um, which said you should have really exhausted your legal remedy because she'd brought the urgency upon herself. If she'd dealt with it in the normal course two or three weeks before, then, you know, so really what we're there to try and give if you like emergency aid at the end but if you uh, let yourself get in a critical uh, position before then then really you've only got yourself to blame and I, and I guess with the so many participants in the games you know inevitably there are going to be certain matters that, that, that just because of the pure battle of administration that's involved or getting the evidence together is going to you know, arise in that 10 day period For, so you're also at the I believe at the Commonwealth Games mm-hmm in India yeah how do the experiences differ and you know has you know, you know I would have thought that, that things have developed and moved on and as sports law has moved on and CAS have, have developed was there any like distinct differences from your role or or was it exactly the same <laughs> no it's very different I mean we had one case <laughs> there, were, there were five arbitrators there um, and there was just literally one case um, I think uh, and then in Glasgow I was um I was on the ad hoc for the Commonwealth Games there, no cases. Um, but the Olympics, it tends to be about a dozen cases. Um, and this year we got 28 cases. Wow. Um, and 16 of them came because of the IOC's decision uh, that was taken in, in July. So relatively, you know, 
relatively uh, recent decision just before the uh, the cast window opened, so we ended up doing a lot of appeals from there. Um, and maybe there's a, there's a difference between the Commonwealth Games and the Olympic Games because I think the Olympic Games is probably a little stricter. You know, if you uh, if you end up with you know 16 athletes qualifying for uh, a track and field event, they are the 16 that will that will be get to compete. If 17 turn up at the Commonwealth Games, they'll probably just allow the 17th one to run because you know the, on the on the track it'll get sorted out. Um, so it's a bit more of a sort of a, um, a sort of friendly games, I would say, the Commonwealth Games in that regard. And you alluded to the, the, the obviously the IOC decision with Russia. Yeah. Um, did that in any way? Did you feel the pressure or, or spotlight on you? I know that there was, and you may want to talk about this. The um, the CAS ad hoc the anti doping ad hoc division as well, mm-hmm. which, was, which was unique, uh, and the, the, really the first time at yeah. these games. Um, did you feel under spotlight? Did you feel under pressure because of that? I'm not sure I really had time. I mean, literally on on the first day I arrived, um, I had to do the uh, that four hour sole arbitration, but I was given three other cases, which were all effectively Russian cases coming out of the IOC decision. And was asked to. I was, I was the president on all three, um, so I had to sort of deal with the directions and list them all. And we were going to hear them at nine o'clock, twelve o'clock, and five o'clock the next day. So three hearings in one day. Wow. You've got to sort of read. Well, all we have is the applications at that time. So then it's waiting for the responses to come in. The responses came in late. There were some issues with the emails, so they got stuck. So it was adjourned the first one, push the other ones back, push the other ones back. One of the ones we actually felt it was a you know was was a a bad case for uh, for the IOC to defend. We felt the athlete you know basically should be able to come and compete because what they were charged with was marijuana out of competition. So we sort of felt that you know they needed to re- review the uh, the decision not to allow that uh, that canoeist in, and they, that got adjourned and adjourned and adjourned, and eventually they just said no, the athlete can come in. But literally for the first five days, I was just dealing with those four cases. And as the president, you're the guy that gets to write the award as well. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'll say I'm a lot nicer to my secretary now because <laughs> I sort of realise what it's like to have to type out 15, 16 pages. I think Brazil do, do good coffee. <laughs> yeah, well, literally, I mean, we were, were in one hotel in Barra and the hotel next to us was um, was where the cast had taken over the uh, the uh, the business suite, so the courts were in there, and there was a walkway between the two hotels. So I literally didn't leave the uh, those hotels for five days. So it looks on paper, it looks very glamorous. When I saw your name come up on the list of ultras, I thought, like, oh, Mark's got a good gig. He's well, going out. <laughs> well, to, to be honest, when I was in um, when I was on the ad hoc in Delhi, I think we had that one case within the first day or so, and that was it. And I was with uh, Graham Mew, who is now a Canadian judge, um, and, a, and another Australian QC. And the three of us would just sort of wake up on a morning, have a look at uh, the paper and say, OK, well, no cases are in. What are Canada, England and Australia playing each other at today? And it would be like, synchronised swimming. OK, let's go. <laughs> so we just go off and watch whatever it was and, uh, yeah, just uh, have a bit of banter about the sport. So I was sort of expecting a little bit more of a holiday in Rio, but it didn't uh, didn't quite pan out that way. So, so with the um, cast panels, I think that obviously for those familiar with with arbitration or dispute resolution in sport will understand the processes of uh, an arbitral body. 
and the administration that goes behind that. But can you just allude, you know, you mentioned there about you know, issuing the directions and so forth. Can you just run through briefly that process, just to give people who maybe aren't familiar with yeah. it, sort of dispute resolution in sport, how that runs? And cause I think often that, um, you know, the role of the sort of the CAS clerks and, and so mm. forth, because I think often, you know, people just think that there's, you know, over a sole arbitrator or three people, you know, in a room somewhere, they have a chat, get, get all the evidence together, maybe hear, see someone there, and then they issue an award. Can you just, you know, go through how that process yeah, runs? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there is a huge CAS court office that's, uh, that's out there. Um, you obviously have Matthew Reb, who's the Secretary General, who's there, and we had Michael Leonard, who is the President of the, the Ad Hoc Division. Uh, but working with them, we have a number of CAS council, uh, so each case uh, will get allocated to a CAS council, who's obviously a qualified lawyer, um, who will then help you run the case. There was also Jean-Philippe Dub- uh, Dubry out there, who is the, effectively the CAS librarian. So he's there and he'll help you with any uh, technical aspects, because as you said, in some of these cases, it's not the first time they've ever been heard. So he can dig out and say, well, actually, back at, um, in Atlanta, case number two was on exactly the same point that you're looking at. You, you might want to look at that one. Um, so that sort of support's amazing uh, to have. But yes, you know, there are standard directions. So the CAS council will prepare them. You have to approve them if you're the president uh, and sign them off and then make sure that you're giving enough time for those directions to fit in a hearing and then fit in the time to deliberate and actually write the decision and then that then still has to be vetted by your council and by um, by Michael and uh, Matthew as well to make sure there's a sort of consistency in jurisprudence um, so yeah there's quite a machine that uh, goes on in the background that uh, you know I guess you don't always get to see or appreciate but we as arbitrators certainly appreciate and, and on reflection having come back is you know a good few weeks now since you've been back um, how do you view the overall experience and would you say there are any sort of key lessons that you've learned from it that you, you'll take away points um, yeah I mean it's just an incredible experience a privilege to be honest I mean you know as a, as a, a lawyer um, it's a privilege to be able to do sports work anyway but then you know you feel like you're getting somewhere towards the top of your own game if you can get to uh, get nominated to go out to uh, to be part of the ad hoc um, and just working with you know different people seeing different styles I mean one of the top guys I, I rate the most Ulrich Haas was there I mean every time I work with him I learn something he's, uh, he's incredible so yeah it was an, an amazing learning experience as you say sort of I would say it sort of taught you to deal with pressure but I'm not sure we haven't had time to stop to think about the pressure you just just ploughed on with it and got on with it all well, maybe that is the lesson yeah. <laughs> you know, don't stop to think about it just, yeah, just, just do it did, yeah just yeah. do it yeah, and you know, and it was great. I mean, I was I was lucky that once the game started, you know, the focus on the legal aspect sort of drops away. Some of the cases that uh, we decided then meant that other cases didn't need to be brought because uh, people knew how, what the outcome was going to be. So once the games gets underway, it sort of calmed down a little bit. So literally that first uh, first week or so was the uh, the tough bit. But you know, there's you know, none of us were sort of scared of hard work. Everybody sort of mucked in and got on with it. Um, and I think, yeah, we could be really proud of what we did. And so that's, that's really interesting. And knowing your background as well, Stephen, and, and, and you're saying that it's a privilege, makes me think, I wonder if people are listening to this thinking, how do I, how can I get myself into that position? And so it might be worth 
um, you know, giving an insight into how did how did you end up in that position? You know, from quite like, humble beginnings, really. Um, right. You end up being a CAS arbitrator at the Rio Games. What was that? How did that journey start? And you know, how how long has that journey been as well? Um, yeah, I guess a long time. <laughs> older than I, older than I look, maybe. But um, I don't know. I mean, I suppose going right back to applying for a training contract. You know, I'd uh, I'd accepted a training contract at Clifford Chance, but after a, this was two years before I was going to start it after about a year I, I sort of felt that I probably still wanted to stay in Manchester so started looking around for firms in Manchester you know it was so much easier in the 80s to, to get a job you could literally you know put out some rubbish CV and handwritten scroll as a covering letter and you get eight interviews for every 10 you sent out which is probably very depressing for young kids now trying to <laughs> trying to sort of battle to get a training contract but I, I literally just applied to the first 10 in the alphabet in Manchester and George Davis was one of those firms. Um, and only at the second interview, because there was no Google in those days, did I discover that they, they acted for the PFA, the Footballers' Union, and did a lot of sports work. Oh, sounds all right. So, yeah, so uh, I decided to, to take that job and um, then made sure I would sort of be nice to and hang around and Brown, Jimmy Brown knows the, the partners that did the sports work um, until I got kept on and then you know worked with uh, the guys there. And I then went off and was playing a lot of football at weekends with accountancy firms and um, some of those did a lot of insolvency work and they were starting to send us insolvency jobs but nobody in the firm really knew how to do any um, insolvency law so I, I qualified as an insolvency practitioner. That was probably mid-90s. And then ITV Digital happened around about 2001 when the broadcaster went bust and sent shockwaves through the industry and about 20 clubs went into administration in one season. Another 20 clubs were going to the PFA and saying, lend us money to keep us afloat. Um, and I spent probably the next two or three years on the road with the PFA going around clubs, solving their uh, insolvency problems, helping the players out of all those places. Um, and it was around about that time that FIFA decided to send their appeal cases to CAS. I think they had a look at the, the list of CAS arbitrators at the time and felt there weren't enough football experts. So they asked around the world for football experts to be nominated and Gordon Taylor at the PFA nominated me. I didn't know we'd done it. I actually just got a, I came into the office one day and there was a fax on my chair which literally said, do you want to be a CAS arbitrator? Tick yes or no and fax it back. So that was 2002, so I did. <laughs> so, and um, yeah, so from there I've done probably 150 arbitrations over the years. Now probably doing, you know, I've probably got 20 live ones at any time. So it's, you know, half my practice is just working oh. out of the course of arbitration. Um, and I guess, you know, bit by bit, as long as you don't make mistakes, as long as you're willing to work hard and, um, you know, turn your awards around in good time and, you know, just be independent, impartial, and sensible. Then uh, you know, bit by bit, you get uh, better, better, uh, better cases. You get trusted with some of the harder work. You get asked to go and lecture for them, and you know, then other people see you and they nominate you, and it just sort of builds and builds. And uh, I guess they then have to look at their panel, or ICAS, the body that sits above CAS, looks at their panels and decide who they want to go to uh, which of the games. And, and I was and lucky enough to get the Olympics in Rio. I, I can imagine some people going, well, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. How did you get to that position in the first place? Now, obviously, in that, in that case, you, you were nominated to be a cash yeah. arbitrator. For those 
and there's a lot of them out there, a lot of lawyers looking at going, yeah, they would love to be because I think it's, it is a, a, a good position to be in because, you know, you're not having to be the advocate. You, you know, you're, you're still involved in the sport, so, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're crucial to the decisions that are made. Um, and obviously from a, from a lawyer's perspective, it's kind of a, a pure sort of sports law role, isn't it? That, you know, the distinct and unique core arbitration for sport. Um, what advice would you give to aspiring CAS arbitrators or aspiring sports arbitrators because it's not only it's not only a CAS you've got obviously sport resolution over here yeah. you've got um, the AAA in America you've got you know, the Centre for Arbitration I think in Canada that's probably the same in Australia etc um, what advice would you give and what do you think the main characteristics um, so first of all what would be the advice you'd give to someone aspiring to be a sports arbitrator and then secondly what do you think those characteristics would, uh, are needed um, to be a good one. Well, I think it is difficult, isn't it? I mean, yeah, we we get so many people almost before they've even been at law college saying, "I want to be a sports lawyer," and there's always this age-old debate: "Well, what is sports law?" Um, so I, I still think you need to actually have some, you know, some sort of background to you, whether it's employment law, whether it's commercial law, whether you're a litigator, whatever it is. I think you know you probably need to decide what area of law I want to specialise in and then look for a firm that actually is active in the sector so and obviously barristers as well look for a chambers that are, are active in the uh, in the sector I think get involved with sport you know I, mean, I sit on numerous boards um, trustees for various things that you know really connect you to sport because as you can see I'm not really an athlete <laughs> but um but actually, working with athletes, uh, you know, most of these things or all those things are pro bono. And so, on that on that point, again, you know, from my own experience, we've spoke about this before. Um, yeah, how would you go about reaching out to people? Because again, it's great. It's great because people, I'm sure, people listening would go, "Well, you're a CAS arbitrator. Of course, you sit on boards. You've got a fantastic CV. You're the head of a sport at law firm." You know, if you're not that person, how do you go about it if you haven't got that experience or exposure at the moment? Yeah, but I mean. You could go on Sport Recreation Alliance's website. There's probably got 500 different sporting bodies. Um, you know, they're not all at the top end. They're not all flush with cash. A lot of them, uh, you know, really have no money and would be delighted to have someone with a legal brain and a bit of passion. Uh, you know, and willing to sort of offer their time to help out. Um, you know, there's loads of opportunities out there if you want. I mean, just look at the Paralympics and the huge success oh, that's absolutely. been. There's so many, you know, sporting bodies in that area as well that oh, would just absolutely. cry out for good lawyers. So, you know, just offer your time, offer your talents, right for you guys. You know, I think it's it's great to actually see uh, young people coming through with opinions and uh, you obviously I sit on your editorial board, so I see some hopefully informed opinions. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you, you give them some help, obviously on the way. Um, you know, so but. I guess it it is important to probably be at somewhere where there's it's a bit of a hub for sports. So some of the chambers, obviously some of the the legal firms, uh, have a better reputation uh, than others for doing that type of work. So if that's really where you want to end up, I think you'd have to sort of get yourself over there. Uh, what would make a good arbitrator? I mean, I, I was never a litigator. This was always you know, my first arbitration was as an arbitrator. So. Um, <laughs> But I think maybe you know, a, a sort of a good inquiring mind, because what you're ultimately being asked to do as an arbitrator is make a decision. Mm. And you know, quite often we we see cases where you think it's not going to be easy to make a decision, or if we give a decision today, it's not actually going to change 
anything. You know, it may be that there's just an ongoing feud between two parties and you can give a decision today that will solve today's problem, but the problem is just going to come back the next day. So I think somebody who's sort of you know, quite good at trying to get a solution, push people together, try and get them to mediate. We've done a lot of arbitrations that have actually gone into mediations in reality. Um, and I think that works particularly well. But yeah, just good inquiring mind. I mean, just you've got to put yourself in a situation where you actually feel able to make a decision. So just ask lots of questions. Don't be shy. Final question for you. Have you looked back over some of your earlier decisions? So, for example, your first arbitration, um, have you looked back over your, your, your previous decision and gone, oh, my word, that was... Uh, uh, yeah, that was that, that was a bit naive, or you know, it wasn't that polish. Or, or do you look back and go, actually, I kept it simple and I did a good job. Yeah, well, I do remember. Uh, well, I think my second case was with uh, with Richard McLaren, obviously, whose uh, McLaren report kept us so busy in uh, in Rio, and with uh, Michaela Berlusconi, and it was a case, it was a, a Welsh doping case, rugby union, from what I remember, and. Uh, sat there and listened very much we just we did it on the on the telephone because um, the, the guy didn't want a hearing so I sat there and listened intently and thought look these two are legends I'm just gonna you know listen chip in with a little word or two and at the end of it we decided the outcome and uh, McKaylee said uh, Richard maybe we should let Mark draft the award he's, he's quite new and you know he might learn from that <laughs> And being young and stupid, I sort of said, um, yeah, sure, that'd be, that'd be great fun. So uh, I drafted this award, and I've never seen as much red. <laughs> it came back from them both, and they absolutely destroyed it. But I probably learned more in that one yeah, <laughs> arbitration yeah. than I would have in the next 20 if they hadn't have done that. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I still look back at that with dread when it came back to me. I thought, oh, my God, it was literally... About 10% black remaining on this. <laughs> They've just absolutely butchered it. Well, there's, no, there's no quick way to learn, though, is there? Then someone actually saying to you, no, you're completely wrong here, this is what you need to do. Yeah. And you can make notes of that. I think you know, sometimes, you know, if you're, I guess if you had fudged it okay, but not really under, had the depth of knowledge, then um, you, know, you wouldn't be in the place you're in now. Yeah, no, for sure. You've, you've, you've got to be you know, always learning. I mean, that's what I was saying. Even when you know, you're out in Rio, I'm always learning. So no, it's, uh, it's been a privilege. Awesome. Well, congratulations on, on, on doing a good job from what I hear out there. And a uh, pleasure to speak to you. Cheers, Sean. Thank Good you. Place. Sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, for all your latest sports law updates and information, you can go to lawandsport.com or follow us on Twitter at Law and Sport. Go to our YouTube channel. Follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also go to our website to sign up for our weekly email. Thanks again for tuning in.